Chapter Seven of English Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. English Literature by Geraldine Hodgson. Sonnets of all forms of poetry. The lyric is perhaps the most natural and instinctive. It is easy to the majority of people to sing somehow from that the step to singing in measured language seems to some a short one as a nation grows in culture the natural lyric becomes more elaborate and rules for its structure begin to be made finally lyrics split up into classes those of sonnets and odes for example in the first chapter a lyric was described as a poem about a single thought feeling or experience as a song which comes from the heart and which while expressing the meaning of one person appeals to many others of all forms of lyric the sonnet is the most carefully ordered it is bound by definite they might be called rigid rules it deals very briefly with one main thought the lyric proper had flourished in england for many generations before the sonnet was introduced the sonnet's origin and birthplace is not precisely known province and sicily have been suggested the latter is generally thought to have begun the use of italian as distinguished from latin for literary purposes the emperor frederick the second ruled the two sicilies and tried being himself a scholar to propagate learning in the southern part of italy besides the classics he cared for the vernacular italian and french which were beginning to replace latin as the speech of everyday life in his sicilian court he gathered round him all the scholars and writers whom he could attract and it seems to have been there that poetical forms and metres proper to italian thought and speech were worked out if the beginnings of italian poetry belonged to the sicilies it was brought to perfection in tuscany and there in the fourteenth century the sonnet was developed when literature moved from palermo to florence it gave up not only the house of suabia for true italians but it changed court life for that of the people poetry was no longer the recreation of princes and courtiers who wrote poetry for each other but it became the possession of the populace who listened to and enjoyed the poetry which had sprung from their own midst during the thirteenth century one or two individuals worked at the sonnet forms fragwitoni di arezzo twelve thirty to twelve ninety four seems to have been the first to seize on and partially perfect the sonnet which he used as it should be for the setting forth of a single thought or feeling dante however speaks of him as one of the poets whom other men praised without sufficient reason to rumour rather than to truth they turn their faces and then do fix their opinions ere art or reason is listened to by them so did many of our fathers with guitoni shouting in turn and praising him alone it was petrarca thirteen o four to thirteen seventy four who fixed the form of the typical italian sonnet like fra guitoni he belonged to arezzo in tuscany the main features of the sonnet as he regulated it are the fixed number of lines fourteen the balance of the poem and the rhyme arrangement the fourteen lines of ten syllables each are divided into the octave containing the first eight and the sestet containing the last six the octave should pause slightly at the end of the first quatrain 
and more definitely at the close of the second the italian form only admitted two rhyme sounds in the octave the first fourth fifth and eighth lines ended with one of these the second third sixth and seventh with the other as the octave was equally divided into two quatrains so was the sestet into two tercets more license in rhyming is now allowed in the sestet sometimes two sometimes three rhyme sounds are permitted and they are not always arranged in the same order the typical petrarchan sonnet allowed three sounds rhyming the first and fourth lines the second and fifth the third and sixth during the fifteenth century a few englishmen travelled in italy the main attraction being the revival of learning owing to the rediscovery of the classics the revival began in italy petrarca gave it a great impetus and it was fostered by intellectually if not always morally enlightened princes in the small italian courts by the republic of florence by scholars who escaped from constantinople and by great italian scholars like john of ravenna peter paul virgerius luigi marsigli gasparino de barisa Paggio Braxionini, filelfo victorino da feltra aeneas silvius piccolomini afterwards pope pius the second and others among the first if not the first english man to become aware of the new learning in italy was richard d bury tutor of edward the third when the latter was prince of wales d bury was twice sent as english ambassador to pope john the twenty second on his way he met petrarca at avignon in thirteen forty five he finished his philo biblion the love of books in latin this was printed at cologne in fourteen eighty five from the first sentence of his opening chapter we may learn an english scholar's view of wisdom the desirable treasure of wisdom and science which all men desire by an instinct of nature infinitely surpasses all the riches of the world in respect of which precious stones are worthless in comparison with which silver is as clay and pure gold is as a little sand at whose splendor the sun and moon are dark to look upon compared with whose marvellous sweetness honey and manna are bitter to the taste where dost thou chiefly lie hidden o most elect treasure and where shall thirsting souls discover thee certes thou hast placed thy tabernacle in books de bury is something of an optimist in supposing that all men desire wisdom by an instinct of nature it seems difficult for some scholars to realize that wisdom is the very last thing many desire with what an economist calls an effective demand or in other words with willingness to pay its price early in the fifteenth century fourteen fifteen henry beaufort attended the council of constance and there he met the famous italian scholar Paggio. twenty years later aeneas selvius travelled through parts of england and scotland more or less incognito he was not greatly impressed and he thought the northerners specially barbarous he kept a record of his travels and among other odd bits of information he solemnly stated that the men of stroud in gloucestershire were all born with tails humphrey duke of gloucester a serious student of italian obtained native teachers to help him with that and with latin he 
he became a great collector of books and on his death in fourteen forty seven left his library to the university of oxford john tiptoff earl of worcester was another eager collector of books he too travelled to italy and on to palestine on his way home he stayed in italy listening to great scholars who were lecturing in padua florence and ferrara the latter distinguished by the brilliant court of the house of Este, famous patrons of learned men and women other english students who visited italy were william gray john free friaz a poor scholar of bristol whom tiptoff probably helped with money free invited another englishman john gunthorpe to ferrara they were joined by a third robert fleming dean of lincoln all this travelling opened up good relations between the two countries and when henry the eighth came to the throne in fifteen o nine admiration for italian learning and literature was firmly established in england however disappointingly bad henry became in later years we have to remember that at his accession the scholars of his day for example thomas more and erasmus were full of high expectations concerning him when henry was only nine years old more took erasmus to see the royal children in their nursery and the latter writing to prince henry closed his letters thus farewell and may good letters be illustrated footnote rendered more shining in footnote by your splendor protected by your authority and fostered by your liberality this growth of vernacular literatures in europe is a matter of great importance throughout the middle ages learned men of different nations spoke and wrote to each other in the common language of the learned latin the supreme place of this language can be guessed from this fact to-day if we are called on to judge dishonorable conduct we sometimes dismiss it with the remark it was not cricket in the middle ages scholars expressed the same opinion by calling it false latin the first englishmen who made literary use in england of the knowledge they had gained abroad were sir thomas wyatt fifteen o three to fifteen forty two and the earl of surrey circa fifteen seventeen to fifteen forty seven who while they were in italy had learned to know and appreciate petrarca's work on their return to england they wrote many sonnets which were eventually collected in a book called toddles miscellany though they had been inspired by petrarca they disregarded his rhyme arrangement in the following sonnet written by surrey he has only two rhyme sounds all through both in octave and sestet the suit footnote sweet and footnote season that bud and bloom forth brings with green hath clad the hill and eke the val the nightingale with feathers new she sings the turtle footnote dove in footnote to her make footnote mate in footnote hath told her tale summer is come for every spray now springs the heart hath hung his old head on the pale the buck and break his winter coat he flings the fishes flate with new repaired scale the adder all her sloth away she slings the swift swallow pursueth the flies small the busy bee her honey now she mings winter is worn that was the flower's bale and thus i see among these pleasant things each care decays and yet my sorrow springs it may seem at first as if this sonnet not only breaks the rules of form 
but does not fulfill the important requirement of having one main thought yet though the facts are rather catalogued the leading motive is that in the midst of the passing away of all wintry pains the poet's sorrow is quite untouched by the joy of returning spring sir philip sidney fifteen fifty four to fifteen fifty six more nearly used the true italian form but he too allowed himself license as to the placing of the rhymes in the sestet as a rule he rhymed the ninth and eleventh the tenth and twelfth and the thirteenth and fourteenth his sonnet to sleep is a typical example of his matter and form come sleep o oh, sleep the certain knot of peace the baiting place of wit the balm of woe the poor man's wealth the prisoner's release the indifferent judge between the high and low with shield of proof shield me without the prease footnote pressure in footnote of those fierce darts despair at me doth throw o make in me those civil wars to cease i will good tribute pay if thou do so take thou of me smooth pillows sweetest bed a chamber deaf to noise or blind to light a rosy garland and a weary head and if these things as being thine by right move not thy heavy grace thou shalt in me livelier than elsewhere stella's image see though sidney rhymes as he will he is careful about the pauses at the end of the quatrains so far as form is concerned this sonnet is an advance on surrey's to spring the rhymed couplet at the close of the sestet is a breach of italian rules but has become characteristic of the english sonnet form which is called shakespearean surrey sidney and spencer all practised this form though of the three spencer experimented most freely his arrangement of rhymes is his own he rhymes the first and third lines the second fourth fifth and seventh the sixth eighth ninth and eleventh the tenth and twelfth and then ends with a rhymed couplet his sixteenth sonnet where he described the little archers of love who lived in his lady's eyes may serve as an example of his sonnet form and not less of his sonnet's beauty of matter one day as i unwarily did gaze on those fair eyes my love's immortal light the whiles my astonished heart stood in amaze through sweet illusion of her look's delight i mote perceive how in her glancing sight legions of loves with little wings did fly darting their deadly arrows fiery bright at every rash beholder passing by one of those archers closely did i spy aiming his arrow at my very heart when suddenly with twinkle of her eye the damsel broke his misintended dart had she not so done sure i had been slain yet as it was i hardly scaped with pain sir walter raleigh fifteen fifty two to sixteen eighteen wrote one great sonnet on spencer's fairy queen his form is no doubt highly irregular he does not divide his poem into octave and sestet he admits no less than seven rhyme sounds whereas spencer was content with five however far his arrangement of them might be from the typical italian form we always should remember that the whole elizabethan age was one of adventure and experiment this spirit spread to the literary men they knew they had learned much and that of great value from italy 
but they did not allow themselves to forget that there is such a thing as national genius however irregular raleigh's sonnet may be it has its place in our literature methought i saw the grave where laura lay within that temple where the vestal flame was wont to burn and passing by that way to see that buried dust of living fame whose tomb fair love and fairer virtue kept all suddenly i saw the fairy queen at whose approach the soul of petrarch wept and from thenceforth those graces were not seen for they this queen attended in whose stead oblivion laid him down on laura's hearse here at the hardest stones were seen to bleed and groans of buried ghosts the heavens did pierce when homer's sprite did tremble all for grief and cursed the access of that celestial thief samuel daniel fifteen sixty two to sixteen nineteen and michael drayton fifteen sixty three to sixteen thirty one further developed the english or shakespearean type of sonnet using six and even seven rhyme sounds but it was left for shakespeare to perfect this typical english form of sonnet in his hands the octave and sestet divisions disappear he uses three quatrains and a rhymed couplet the problem to whom did he address these sonnets has never been solved they remain to show us that quite apart from his dramatic genius he had also lyrical genius a rare sense of melody a penetrating insight and passionate emotions qualities in which no other poet has surpassed him in the whole range of english poetry abundantly rich though it is in the expression of unquestionable love can there be found lines more perfect more passion-laden more musical than these shall i compare thee to a summer's day thou art more lovely and more temperate rough winds do shake the darling buds of may and summer's lease hath all too short a date sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines and often is his gold complexion dimmed and every fair from fair sometime declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed but thy eternal summer shall not fade nor lose possession of that fair thou owest nor shall death brag thou wondrous in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest so long as men can breathe or eyes can see so long lives this and this gives life to thee any one can see that shakespeare observes no sonnet rules save that he keeps to fourteen lines of ten syllables each pauses divisions order of rhymes are all disregarded and the proper comment may be found in henry v's reminder to catherine of france o kate nice customs curtsy to great kings therefore shakespeare moulded the english sonnet or one form of it rather as his genius led him his sequence of one hundred and fifty-four poems has love for its subject and choosing from them we will take him in an hour of confidence in one of doubt and close with his sonnet of immortal love the twenty-fifth discloses him at a moment when he is sure that his love is returned let those who are in favor with their stars of public honor and proud titles boast whilst i whom fortune of such triumphs bars unlooked for joy in that i honor most 
great princes favorites their fair leaves spread but as the marigold at the sun's eye and in themselves their pride lies buried for at a frown they in their glory die the painful warrior famous for fight after a thousand victories once foiled is from the book of honor raised quite and all the rest forgot for which he toiled then happy i that love and am beloved where i may not remove nor be removed then in the ninety-first sonnet he confessed to an hour of despondency and fear some glory in their birth some in their skill some in their wealth some in their body's force some in their garments though new-fangled ill footnote in shakespeare's time many englishmen borrowed ideas for clothes from foreign countries in richard the second he spoke of report of fashions in proud italy whose manners still are tardy apish nation limps after in base imitation in footnote some in their hawks and hounds some in their horse and every humour hath its adjunct pleasure wherein it finds a joy above the rest but these particulars are not my measure all these i better in one general best thy love is better than high birth to me richer than wealth prouder than garments cost of more delight than hawks or horses be and having thee of all men's pride i boast wretched in this alone that thou mayest take all this away and me most wretched make yet beneath all accidents proof against all temptations invincible in all dangers there remains that love which many waters cannot quench and rising above his individual confidence or distrust shakespeare in his one hundred and sixteenth sonnet wrote of love indestructible let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove oh no it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken it is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown although his height be taken love's not time's fool though rosy lips and cheeks within the bending sickle's compass come love alters not with his brief hours and weeks but bears it out even to the edge of doom if this be error and upon me proved i never writ nor no man ever loved milton who was well acquainted with italian literature took pains at times to observe the petrarchian arrangement of rhymes but he disregarded the rule of making a definite pause or break in music and in thought after the octave equally he discarded the shakespearean form of three quatrains and a rhymed couplet his perhaps best-known sonnet on his blindness is an excellent example of his form called after him the mill tonic it should be remembered that believing it to be his duty to serve his country as latin secretary under the commonwealth he had not only given up all leisure and energy for writing the poetry which he had planned as his life's work but sacrificed his eyesight too when i consider how my light is spent ere half my days in this dark world and wide and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker and present my true account 
lest he returning chide doth god exact day labor light denied i fondly ask but patience to prevent that murmur soon replies god doth not need either man's work or his own gifts who best bear his mild oak they serve him best his state is kingly thousands at his bidding speed and post o'er land and ocean without rest they also serve who only stand and wait in this sonnet the rhyme placing is correctly petrarchan but there is no pause whatever at the end of the first quatrain also at the close of the octave it is essential to the sense of the words to run on the sound though there is no stop at bent a slight break in sound might be permissible but any break after prevent makes nonsense in five only of his sixteen english sonnets does milton observe this strict petrarchan form in most of the others he has but two rhyme sounds in the sestet it has often been urged that in the sphere of creative work whether poetry painting sculpture architecture or whatever it may be no woman has yet reached the front rank among poetic forms the sonnet stands apart depending essentially on the wedding of beautiful thought and very delicate highly wrought form here surely a woman might hope to succeed anyhow there are critics who maintain that mrs meynell's renouncement is one of the greatest english sonnets dante gabriel rossetti declared it to be one of the three finest ever written by women leaving aside these questions of relative merit which after all cannot be settled to every one's satisfaction it can be said without fear of contradiction that its workmanship is perfect and its thoughts delicately true the form is purely petrarchan i must not think of thee and tired yet strong i shun the thought that lurks in all delight the thought of thee and in the blue heaven's height and in the sweetest passage of a song oh just beyond the fairest thoughts that throng this breast the thought of thee waits hidden yet bright but it must never never come in sight i must stop short of thee the whole day long but when sleep comes to close each difficult day when night gives pause to the long watch i keep and all my bonds i needs must loose apart must doff my will as raiment laid away with the first dream that comes with the first sleep i run i run i am gathered to thy heart here we find the due pauses in sound and sense the traditional rhyme placing and the climax of the closing line it was published in mrs meynell's preludes in eighteen seventy five like shakespeare milton had worked out a form of his own in half his sonnets the second eighth ninth tenth thirteenth fourteenth fifteenth twentieth and twenty-first he makes a definite pause at the end of the octave but only in the second on his being arrived at the age of twenty-three in the fifteenth to general fairfax and in the twenty-first to syriac skinner does he definitely introduce that kind of new thought which makes the sestet a climax to the whole poem so far we have arrived at three sonnet forms to be found in our literature the first is the petrarchan with its carefully arranged rhymes a pause after the first quatrain 
and its definite break in sound and sense at the octave's end an excellent example in english is milton's to syriac skinner syriac whose grandsire on the royal bench of british themis with no mean applause pronounced and in his volumes taught our laws which others at their bar so often wrench to-day deep thoughts resolve with me to drench in mirth that after no repenting draws let euclid rest and archimedes pause and what the sweet intend and what the french to measure life learn thou betimes and know toward solid good what leads the nearest way for other things mild heaven a time ordains and disapproves that care though wise and show that with superfluous burden loads the day and when god sends a cheerful hour refrains secondly we have found the shakespearean sonnet made up of three quatrains and a rhymed couplet and thirdly the miltonic which as a rule whether it preserves the petrarchan rhyme order or the shakespearean freedom of rhyme disregards the important rule of a break at the octave the question arises why should there ever have been insistence on this break since two poets of the rank of shakespeare and milton disregarded it theodore watts a minor poet but a penetrating critic of the nineteenth century defended petrarchus arrangement on the ground that it accords with nature's laws which so far as we can observe do not govern the world on a process of perpetual movement onward or progress as some call it but are always an ebb and flow a gathering up which will break presently an advance and a retreat meditating by the sea with the sound of the forward sweep and the backwash of the tide in his ears mr watts wrote this sonnet on the sonnet in which he discards precision of traditional rhyme but carefully preserves the divisions of sound and sense especially at the octave's close yon silvery billows breaking on the beach fall back and foam beneath the starshine clear the while my rhymes are murmuring in your ear a restless love like that the billows teach for on these sonnet waves my soul would reach from its own depths and rest within you dear as through the billowy voices yearning here great nature strives to find a human speech a sonnet is a wave of melody from heaving waters of the impassioned soul a billow of tidal music one and whole flows in the octave then returning free its ebbing surges in the sestet roll back to the deeps of life's tumultuous sea back to the deep thus by an example he showed the underlying reason of the traditional italian form wordsworth in his sonnet on the sonnet proclaimed its use and function dealing not with its outward form but with its contents and purpose scorn not the sonnet critic you have frowned mindless of its just honours with this key shakespeare unlocked his heart the melody of this small lute gave ease to petrarch's wound a thousand times this pipe did tasso sound with its camins soothed an exile's grief the sonnet glittered a gay myrtle leaf amid the cypress with which dante crowned his visionary brow a glow-worm lamp 
It cheered mild Spencer, called from fairyland to struggle through dark ways, and when a damp fell round the path of Milton, in his hand the thing became a trumpet whence he blew soul-animating strains. Alas, too few. The eighteenth and nineteenth century sonneteers, like Wordsworth here, paid little attention to the Petrarchan rules. After all, each nation has its own genius and is free to work out its poetical methods. Of all European races, perhaps Englishmen have least patience with inflexible rules. The result has been, in this matter of sonnet-making, a wide liberty, which has ended in fine achievement. Shakespeare's sonnets, Spencer's, some of Wordsworth's, such, for example, as Westminster Bridge, Earth has not anything to show more fair, or Dover Beach, inland, within a hollow oak, I stood, or his call to Milton, Milton, thou shouldest be living at this hour, England hath need of thee. All these are unsurpassed as poetry. There are other collections of English sonnets, for instance, Rossetti's House of Life, Mrs. Browning's Sonnets from the Portuguese, Wilfred Scowen Blunt's Love Sonnets of Proteus, and a few of Christina Rossetti's, which have become indestructible, inseparable parts of our literature. Here and there, an otherwise minor poet has won fame by a single great sonnet, as Blanco White did with Night and Death, which Coleridge considered the finest and most grandly conceived sonnet in our language, mysterious night when our first parent knew thee from report divine and heard thy name did he not tremble for this lovely frame this glorious canopy of light and blue yet neath a curtain of translucent dew bathed in the rays of the great setting flame hesperus with the host of heaven came and lo creation widened in man's view who could have thought such darkness lay concealed within thy beams, O sun, or who could find, whilst flower and leaf and insect stood revealed, that to such countless orbs thou madest us blind? Why do we then shun death with anxious strife, if light can thus deceive, wherefore not life? Again others, whose main work may have lain in other poetical forms, have written a few fine sonnets, like Keats and Matthew Arnold. William Watson, still living among us, has never received the general acceptance which, among his admirers, seems due to him. He is not in the first rank of poets. It might even be admitted that very often his thought is thinner than is suitable to the perfection of his workmanship. But he has written beautiful poetry, and in an age constantly tending to slipshod go as you please fashions he has never published crude unfinished unpolished verse the more delicate poetic forms such as the sonnet and the quatrain naturally appealed to him a large number of his sonnets were on political subjects about which a majority of his countrymen took the side opposite to his but whatever men's politics they should not let passion blind their poetic taste. It is difficult to know which to choose. In the Armenian collection, 
the sonnet to gladstone and the knell of chivalry are both true poetry in an earlier volume there occurs the fine sonnet addressed to france on the day after the assassination of president carnot perhaps as both concern matters still of burning moment room may be made here for the first and the last this is watson's invocation to gladstone the tired lion in retirement speak once again with that great note of thine hero withdrawn from senates and their sound unto thy home by cambria's northern bound speak once again and wake a world supine not always not in all things was it mine to follow where thou letst but who hath found another man so shod with fire so crowned with thunder and so armed with wrath divine lift up thy voice once more the nation's heart is cold as anatola's mountain snows oh from these alien paths of base repose call back thy england ere thou to depart ere on some secret mission thou to start with silent footsteps whither no man knows the other might seem strange to those who only knew of the comradeship of france and england during the great war yet that friendship was a late born and alas somewhat tender plant tenderer than those who love both countries like to think it light-hearted heroine of tragic story nation whom storm on storm of ruining fate on ruined leaves nay fairer more elate hungrier for action more athirst for glory world-witching queen from fiery floods and gory rising eternally regenerate clothed with great deeds and crowned with dreams more great spacious as fancy's boundless territory little thou lovest our island and perchance thou heedest as little her reluctant praise yet let her in these dark and bodeful days sinking old hatreds neath the sundering brine immortal and indomitable france marry her tears her alien tears to thine once more occasionally an author known principally as a novelist may write a strikingly beautiful sonnet like this of hall Caine where lies the land to which thy soul would go beyond the wearied wold the songless dell the purple grape and golden asphodel beyond the zone where streams baptismal flow where lies the land of which thy soul would know there where the unvexed senses darkling dwell where never haunting hurrying footfall fell where toil is not nor builded hope laid low rest rest to thy hushed realm how one by one old earth's tired ages steal away and weep forgotten or unknown long duty done ah god when death in seeming peace shall steep life's loud turmoil and time his race hath run shall heart of man at length find rest and sleep at the beginning of this chapter attention was drawn to the heavy debt which the elizabethans owed to italian literature which itself rose out of the rediscovery in the thirteenth and following centuries of greek and roman classics no small factor in the spread of the new learning in england was the refounding about the year fifteen twelve of st paul's school 
by the dean john colette friend of the sixteenth century's finest scholar erasmus and of sir thomas more saint scholar and wit lawrence binion on the occasion of the fourth centenary of that refounding wrote a sonnet which seems to close appropriately this short account of a form of poem which drew so much inspiration from the italian renaissance when the long clouded spirit of europe drew life from greek springs frost could no longer bind and old truth shone like fresh dawn on the blind our founder sowed his pregnant seed he knew no crabbed rule rather he chose a clue that should emband us of our historied kind comrades and keep us in a mourning mind since to the wise learning is always new in faith and letters he enshrined his light faith the divine adventure that holds on through this world's forest into worlds unknown and letters that since speech on earth began as one unended sentence burning right the hope the triumph and the tears of man the sonnet is not as the lyric or ballad is a form of spontaneous impulsive song it is at once the task and the joy of a craftsman probably it will never be popular but it will remain always dear to the artist at its worst it is worthless at its best it touches perfection end of chapter seven